Hello, welcome to Alive or Just Blathering, a podcast where two 30-somethings discuss the music we found and loved growing up. My name is Chris Lavender, with me is my fellow host Keith McLeod, and our special guest, Tony Martoni. Today on Alive or Just Blathering, we will be taking you through Rated R by Queens of the Stone Age. Nailed it. Well done, Lev. Smash Welcome it. back, everyone. How are we all doing? Hi, everyone. It's been it's been a long time. It has. We've had a we've had a month off. Strange. Quite a lot's happened, yet nothing's changed. Literally. <laughs> and welcome to our special guest, Tony. He is the owner of independent music label Wasted State Records. Hello, Tony. Hello. How's it going? And uh, today's. Today's discussion is an album that he has chosen, so we're going to hopefully direct today's conversation around the second studio album by Queens of the Stone Age. Uh, it's a bit of a journey album. Keith, do you want to drop in the social links? We're so rusty. Am I just making this awkward for you and letting you just like drown Very. As, you're tr- as you're treading water trying to get through this? Trying to swim, trying to swim. Sure, man. Now I need to talk, and that's going to be awkward. Uh, what have we got? We've got yeah. Well, if anyone wants to give us a shout, we are of course on the usual uh, socials: Instagram, Twitter, and of course Facebook. Thanks, Lav. Still never going to forgive you for that. Uh, at AOGB Podcast, uh, we have been quiet for the last couple of weeks, but we're coming back, guys. So why don't we get fired into Rated R? Tony, what have you got? Yeah, this is um, this is a special one for me. I think it was one of like the first. Now, well, it's not the first album, but it's certainly one of the sort of major albums of growing up and getting into music that really sort of hit me as a as a music fan or got me to be a music fan and got me to understand more about music that wasn't just the usual nonsense that was on Radio 1. Although, What, what were you kind of listening to before this then? Uh, I, I was and still am a huge fan of uh, Britpop. Uh, which is something I will not apologise for, but it surprises a lot of people, especially because of the sort of records that I've put out. But um, yeah, love a bit of Britpop. Love a bit. Of everyone, everyone in Britain, I'm loath to use that term, but everyone in Britain can't not like love a Blur song or or love an Oasis song. Like you might not like the bands, and you maybe you weren't into Britpop, but you'll hear, dare I say, Wonderwall or 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 whatever or Song Two, and there'll be a wee toe tap like i think i think we can all say that you all know that song it's it's in the zeitgeist of of when we were teenagers when we were young kids wonderwall non-stop song two what was that used on that was used on a game that was used on uh, FIFA 97 it was i think at the time it was used on loads of stuff i think their publisher like blur's publishers really got in about it and it was licensed to like loads of in that i can't even remember was it 98 that came out it was licensed to loads of films, loads of games. It was just, it was everywhere. I think it was on like one of the, the racing, the, like the PlayStation racing games and stuff. It was just, it was everywhere at the same time. It was brilliant. Could not escape it. It's interesting that you mentioned that you're a Britpop fan and you've brought up Queens of the Stone Age who, and rated R, because just looking at some of the, the performance of it, it actually did better in the UK than any other country. Yeah, it it was, but they were different as well at the time. So, so when I was looking back at everything, looking back at like the release date and what I was doing then, which is a long time ago, 
So it came out the same week as Tea in the Park, and it was before Tea in the Park in Scotland became like a, just a massive drinking session for for Scottish festival goers. And it was yeah. if you look at the lineup, they didn't play it, but if you look at the lineup, it was pretty Britpop heavy uh, on the main stage. There was Fun Loving Criminals as like your token American band. And I think the, the festival was still pretty small at the time as well, but yeah, it was it was something different, and it was it was touted as being a heavy album. Which it was, it, which it is in in some senses, but in a lot of senses, it's not. Like second track, well, I'll start keeping a secret. Like it's it's a it's a it's a sort of it's a really sort of driving riff, but it's not a heavy guitar. It's not at the you know at the same time the most sort of coherent thing to that would be like the sort of the new met the sort of birth of new metal, which was all like heavy chuggy guitars and pitch harmonics and stuff. Where there wasn't any of that in Queens of Stone Age, especially like the first single, which was. Um, yeah, we'll start keeping a secret. It was, it was, qu- it's quite a sort of the guitar track on it is quite light. If you listen to the the, the song as a whole, yeah. it's the rest of it that makes it heavy. It's like at the time that was maybe was that a year before or a year after um, Weezer's Green album came out, and when the Weezer's Green album came out, everyone said that that like Hashpipe was the heaviest song that had been released. And it wasn't because it was in a drop tuning and everyone was going, I hate my fucking riff. It was because it was just a, it was a heavy riff. The da, 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 that sort of like, that was heavy. And it's it was a really driving but riff. Had, yeah, but it still had sort of like pop sensibilities about it. And I think that's one of the things that Queens of Stone Age got really, really right that Caius didn't. And that's always the band that they're always compared to. And a lot of the sort of like stoner rock, like elite folk are like, yeah, Caius were better than Queens of Stone Age. And they were for certain things. But if you want to listen to the same thing over and over again, go and listen to Caius. Yeah, they've, they've, yeah. they've got a much, limit, much more limited range, I think. Yeah. Songs like Hashpipe as well, like, these might... You're, I think, if I'm following you right, you're, you're right in saying they're not heavy songs, but they're potentially heavy songs for those bands. So, I, think, I, I think at some points, just generally heavy. I think Hashpipe is possibly heavier than anything like Linkin Park did. Because I think that was maybe a comparable timeline-wise. That like, hash pipe, I think, is heavier than the whole hybrid theory. It's the palm That's muting. maybe just me. I yeah, it's, I it's think that's... It's, it's, it's not all about screaming vocals, it's, but then the, the, the tuning of the guitars, and I think that riff, that hash pipe riff, is, is such a... I think the best I can describe it is like a, a, a train, like dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Yeah. It's got this sort of driven sound about it, which... If you compare it to the likes of Linkin Park, they were much more vocal, um, sing-along uh, tracks, yeah. I suppose. I think Queens of Stone Age for me, because I think the, f- the first Queens of Stone Age song I heard was Lost Art Keeping a Secret, and it was on, it might well have been on Radio 1, but I was like, holy shit, this is heavy. and But it's not heavy to the point of my ears are bleeding and I can't make out what this guy's saying. You know, there's a yeah. lot of like you know a lot of heavier a lot of heavier stuff. And a lot, you know, I'm not I'm not knocking it off. But a lot of it's really really good, but a lot of it you can't make out what's going on. And you read the lyrics and you're like, is that really what you're singing about? It just it sounds like a, a total garbled mess. Whereas Queens of Stone Age, when when I first heard them, I think it was just before or just after Tea, uh, tea in the Park, and it was it was heavy, but you can hear what he's singing. And you know, at the time, you know, it didn't make any sense to me, but because I was I think I was 15 or something, but it was it was just it had girth to it without being over the top. First time I heard Queens of Stone Age would have been 
just before the release of Songs for the Deaf, uh, there was a live version of No One Knows played on MTV2 and it had Dave Grohl on the drums and everyone. And I remember seeing that and thinking, this band's good. I'm going to go to HMV and I'm going to buy the Queens of the Stone Age album. And thinking that I was getting Songs for the Deaf or the one with No One Knows on, I ended up getting Rated R. And it was from there I then discovered that there were songs on there that had been released two, would have been about two or three years earlier, like um, Feel Good Hit of the Summer and Lost Out of the Keeping the Secret. And I'm sure there was a video for Monster in Your Parasol. There had, is. There is a video, yeah, I'm sure. It's, but it was, it's, it's not one. on the release thing on, on Wikipedia, which is annoying. <laughs> is I, like to... I think Mark Lanigan was in that one. Yeah, because it was, I think Songs for the Deaf was released in 2002. So it would have been it would have been about two years, but I think that was that was a stroke of marketing genius. Like they'd already recruited Dave Grohl to do drums on a on a on a musical level, like on an artistic level or whatever you want to call it, because they were they were pals and Queens of the Stone Age toured with Foo Fighters and everything, and they, they were friends and they all got on and that was great. But like the marketing genius of that was like, okay, the album's not going to be out for a bit. We're not going to have the album done, and the you know whatever production video is not going to be done. So let's just film a gig. And then, especially especially then, because that was like the peak of music TV. Let's, what's the best way to get Dave Grohl in the video? Just have him behind the kit, playing playing along with us. The, yeah. the, the connection with with the uh, the grunge scene in of Seattle in the nineties. From reading about this album, I'm, the names that just keep cropping up. I'm like that. So on rated R, there's backing vocals by Peter Stahl. He was the vocalist in Scream, which was Dave Grohl's band before Nirvana. Yeah, and um, I think on the first the first Queens of Stone album, album they toured with uh, Pearl Jam's drummer. Their first album was released by Stone Gossard. Mike Kozik. was it? Uh, uh, both it was it was the two of them, Stone Gossard and Mike Kozik. They had uh, yeah, Man's Ruin. They were on. I'm jumping all over here. I had this written down somewhere. Loose Groove Records. All right. So the self-titled was on that with, and that was Stone Gossard's label. It's maybe the EPs then that were on Man's Ruin, which was Frank Kozik's label. I might be, I might be wrong on that. We've also not addressed the elephant in the room. Lav. Which is, and Tony, we have a bit of a thing for this on the pod in previous episodes. Queens of the Stone Age are a super group. Uh, they're an evolving supergroup. Technically, they're technically they're a supergroup. By by the standards that we have discussed, they're a supergroup because uh, yeah. they were all in they were all in groups previously that had released records. I understand your point about them being an evolving supergroup because the the, the lineup does change constantly. They have a lot of uh, collaborators and contributions across their their albums. But I was sort of going through my notes or, or you know going through the, the the reading today, and I was just like, "Fuck, they're another fucking supergroup." So who who have we covered Shit. before that's a supergroup? Foo yeah, Fighters. <laughs> Foo Fighters were a supergroup. Yeah. Uh, who was the first one? Audio Slave. That was the first time this came up. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so by definition of some of the artists being in previously successful bands, this is a supergroup. Yeah, if you look at, I mean, even looking at the liner notes, like if you look at who was on each track, yeah, that's, a, that's a supergroup. Like Rob Halford's on Feel Good Hit the Summer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, that's that's a supergroup. 
Mike Johnson yeah. from Dinosaur Jr. is doing backing vocals. Yeah. We're not stating that supergroups are bad in any sense, but we, you know, the, the term is meaningless. That's the point. It's a meaningless yeah. term because technically you could say any band in the world that even you've played in is a supergroup because you've have played in other bands that maybe yes. had a demo. I'm in a supergroup. I'm in a supergroup we... finally. It's amazing. I've made it. Put it on your link. Get it on your LinkedIn page. Yes. Absolutely. No, I just thought that was funny. But I think we were, you know, we were, we were talking about like sort of taking it back to like Britpop song two, Weezer and, and Hashpipe and stuff like that. These songs reminded me a little bit more of uh, sort of song for the deaf. And then to me, like when you were talking about heavy, I was thinking on me for rated R, nothing's particularly heavy. I would have said feel good hit of the summer is maybe the heaviest, but then it also has very first it giveth vibes from songs for the deaf. Yeah, it's there's I think. Other than um, autopilot, the other two tunes that Nick Oliveri sings on, like Tension, is it yeah. Tension Head and Quick and to the Pointless? Like there, I think one of those was actually. So there's a lot of cheating involved in this album because they are a supergroup and there's a lot of folk involved in it. But two, one of the tracks was a previous Mondo Generator. Um, tune. I read that, yeah. And one of them was um, Dave Cat. Was it Dave Catchin's band? Um, I wrote it down. Lightning song is Lightning song uh, is Dave Earth, Catching. Earthlings, Earthlings was that the band? The band maybe band. Earthlings, yeah. So yeah, there, there's that, and then a couple of the tunes, a couple of like the, the Queens of Stone Age, Queens of Stone Age songs, were from Desert Sessions that that Josh Homme did previously in the same way that I want to make it with you off of Era Volgaris was a previous Desert Sessions song as well. So that sort of stuff's quite interesting in the way that they're a band, but they're not a band, but they are a band, but maybe they're not a band. And it's not like, we, hey, we're, there's five of us, we're going to go into the studio and write this album. It's like, hey, there's two of us, I'm going to go into the studio and we're going to play this album and we're going to get all our pals in who just happen to be in other bands. Uh, oh, we need another tune. Or oh, what about that one you did with that band? Or what about that one I did with that random thing where we all sat in the desert and got pissed on tequila and like recorded a bunch of tunes? And just... And took a shit ton of cocaine. Yeah, well, yeah, well, that's, that's that was the whole first track. It's basically, like, wow, what's in our system right now? All right, drugs, brilliant. All Let's six, the drugs. name all six of them. Yeah, name all six drugs and make it rhyme. That's and those are the only lyrics. There's no, there's no and or 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 the or any any other word of any semblance other than like a couple of yes. It's just a shopping list. This is a complete digression. But has anyone, this, just on the subject of drugs, and this came up uh, in conversation uh, with, with, with my partner and a friend recently, do you know what the, the latest drugs the kids are taking these days is called? The latest drug the kids are taking these days is called? TikTok. Uh, <laughs> if, if it's not... <laughs> Only fans. No, it's, um, <laughs> well, uh, down here anyway, it's, it's, it's got the name Spice. Oh, God. And I just burst out laughing do you know what spice is it's it's i think it's salvia sprayed with more chemicals no it's it's synth- spice expands it, the universe synthetic cannabinoids so sense yeah synthetic marijuana is, is yeah what it's worse it's it. worse for you than cannabis ever could be it sends you into a total like k-hole um it sounded like poppers like times a thousand it's, i thought it was gonna be some another sort of level reference and um you can get it on like there's there's a lot of it's it's rife in prisons because it's it's highly addictive apparently. And can you make it in a toilet? You can make it 
I, th- I don't think they can make it in prisons, but it's it gets in, and once it's in, it's just... It, Oh, look at this prisoner with a new bowl of pop- pottery. They get it. You get. Pop-pourri. You can get it from. You get it blown in your face. The prison officers have been sent home and get sent to hospital when it's been on them and stuff. Oh wow! It's wicked stuff. It's real bad. Um, well, the reason I just bring it up is because I laughed my ass off because space is the 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 term used in the Star Wars universe for drugs, like, which was stolen. Man- um, thank you for bringing this up. So this was stolen from the writing of Jodorowsky's Dune, which was a two right, okay. 2013 movie. Is, it can say a lot more than I can. It's about two hours long. So effectively, the novel Dune, written by Frank Herbert in, in 1958, was first going to be made into a movie by, oh, what's his first name? Alejandro. Un- Alejandro Jodorowsky. He right. was, I have heard about the, the the original June film and how it was supposed to be utterly massive and like the sort of the next Cleopatra or what have you. Yeah, it was going to be bonkers. amazing. The oh, the sound! The soundtrack the, got made and it's outstanding. It's the a cast, trip. the cast of this movie was going to be something else. Orson Welles right. was going to be in it. Mick Jagger. Um, who else got listed? Salvador in? Dali. Salvador Dali was going to be in the what. The the Salvador Fucking Dali one, the Salvador Dali one was really funny. He was the most expensive actor they were going to pay for, but they were going to pay. So what they did was they were going to pay him by the minute. It's a ten. It was going to be a ten hour movie, and I think they were going to only put him in for four minutes. Wow. <laughs> so, he, but he could, but then he could put on his uh, CV or whatever, whatever his, his repertoire has been like. Have his mustache and his ocelot. Yeah, he was. <laughs> yeah, that's all you need for a film. But effectively, what Absolutely. they did was they fully storyboarded the whole movie. The illustrator was the guy, if you've ever picked up a sci-fi novel from like the 60s uh, right through to the 80s, it was likely drawn by this guy. He's a British guy. I think he's, I can't remember his surname, Chris something, but he's he's got a very unique art style. He basically made the entire storyboard. They put it into this coffee table book that they left in various places to try and get attention from the, uh, to get it produced because the, the, the original producers pulled out. Mm-hmm. It effectively got compl- oh yeah, the, all the sets was going to be made by H.R. Geiger, and yeah, I knew that. Yeah, it effectively got entirely bastardized into what we now know today as Alien, Star Wars, Terminator, basically any fucking sci-fi movie from nineteen seventy-five onwards can say that it stole something from this book from this from this artwork or took some inspiration from it. Yeah. So, and then they made June. And well and then they made the nineteen eighty made the film. Then David Lynch turned was it David, uh, David Lynch it came Lynch, along yeah. and uh made a belter. He made a three hour epic which then Dino De Laurentiis, the uh the producer, said it's not gonna be longer than two hours. So basically got it got utterly fucked by and that's why Lynch took his name off it as well, wasn't it? Because it got his shit. name's not on the TV version. It's a Judas something is listed it's, as the... It's like some Hollywood name for folk that don't like being... like They, they totally disavow themselves from it. So they use this like... It's a stock name. So it's... Yeah, it's something like... All oh, right. Yeah, it's something... But it's got some sort of like mad historical meaning. Like, oh, yeah, Judas something. Yeah. It's, yeah. So th- that's the TV... Judas, that, Judas as in... Ju- Ju- Judas. Judas. Judas, the biblical that's character. That's a bit on the nose, isn't it? Um, I can't remember what it is, but it's like, it's, but it's some like the surname's like Smith or something. Yeah. It's, it, you wouldn't think of if you saw it 
without knowing you just go oh he he, he made this movie but i it's yeah. it was the the, t- the made for tv movie that they they took the the david lynch's one they took bits out they added bits in but then some very very studious people on the internet have taken all the stuff they could find on this movie all the deleted scenes the tv stuff some of the artwork that was made that never got in put it all together into one big movie and it actually oh, internet. and it actually makes it completely watchable wow. so if you ever look for the spice diver remix of uh of dune uh and it's well that's that's a digression but so space space came from dune <laughs> which i then knew it from star wars and just when I heard that, you know, the kids these days are all on space, I just laughed. I was like, fuck's sake, man. <laughs> like, they can't even take real drugs anymore. It was like the one, it was like the one years ago called like MCAT or something. It yeah. Was, it was like some... Yeah, what was that? It was, um, I think it was like some homemade derivative of like speed and coke that just made you a mess. And I it thought was... it was like ketamine. No, it was definitely not. <laughs> It had an opposite effect on someone that I know. Right, interesting. Might I'd love me. to. I'd love to know why. No, I don't. I know. I know exactly why. But I'd love to know the person that discovered that horse tranquilizer is an effective drug. Oh, it's, it's the same as. Oh, sorry. Everyone, everyone calls it ketamine, but it's it's, it's how, horse tranquilizer. How many? How many hundreds of years ago did some dude in the woods just smoke a leaf and think that shit is good, man? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's a natural progression if you ask me. Yeah, like, hang on, that, just that's changed. just come out that chicken's arse. I'm gonna, I'm gonna chuck it in a frying pan and eat I'm it. Crack, gonna crack that one. Yeah, let's let's see what's Ooh. inside. Let's let's fry it. Let's scramble it. Let's put some spices in it. Yes, we've 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 digressed earlier, we but drugs are a, are a terrible, prominent feature on this on this album. Yeah, well, that's, that's pretty uh, much the whole theme. Yeah, I I, laugh, I had to laugh because just just you know perusing Wikipedia and to to see what they had to say on it. There's there's a bit that says from Wikipedia the the album contains numerous references to drugs and alcohol. This is particularly prominent on the opening track "Feel Good Hit of the Summer," which consists entirely of the repeated verse. Nicotine, Valium, Vicodin, Marijuana, Ecstasy, and Alcohol, followed by one, two, three, four, five C's, cocaine. And I was just like, that's an understatement. <laughs> that's the most understated thing yeah. on Wikipedia, is that this album has drugs in it. They might be, yeah, and that was one of the things, because it was, um, so it was released, and, you know, the the there's no swearing in it. There's no swearing in it at all. There's no... F- really? No, there's no shit. There's no fuck. There's nothing that would be deemed... That you'd you know you'd cover your kids' ears and go, hey, you can't listen to that. There's no swearing on it, but it still got banned in like was it Walmart in the states? And Walmart, Walmart, in the, in Walmart the states, threatened to remove it because of the yeah. Uh, and the drug Walmart references. was at the time was like you know still a pretty big seller of CDs, and they wouldn't stock it because of the drug references, not because they wanted a, a parental advisory sticker on it, but mm-hmm. it, I think it was the use of that of the the lyrics in the first song. It wasn't saying, hey, I'm going to go out and jag up and get high on smack. It was just a shopping list. So they, they didn't the really have any... Yeah, they were just saying cocaine, cocaine. So they didn't they didn't have any grounds to like to actually pull it on, on any sort of legal basis because yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't saying, hey, this is what I had last night. They said that in interviews later, 
It's like, oh yeah, that's what me and Nick had the night before and we were totally fucked and, you know, we wrote this song and it was great. But there's never any, you know, there's never any sort of like context to it. So I wonder if, I wonder if this, the controversy that the album had was probably the reason that it, it never broke into the US Billboard 200. It, might well it touched been. the heat seekers, but it never, it never actually got into their top 200. Whereas in the UK, it hit number 54. And number fifty-five in Scotland. Yeah. Nice. We love the Scottish charts. Love, love it. I love it when the Scottish charts are listed. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I it's, it's it, there are different markets, and you know, sort of dealing with the American market. America's is not a country. Well, it's a country. Don't want to get fake news, but it's Ooh. it's like parcels of parcels and parcels of countries jammed together. It's fifty, it's 50 countries ish. Yeah, and it's. It's it's a different market in every state, and it's that's why it's hard to it's hard to promote an album and it's hard to break an album in the states. And that's always what the, the sort of British British record industry has always been. You know, like, oh, we need to break America. We need to break America. We need to break America. But it's breaking America is like breaking England, and you're comparing yeah. to you know geographically two totally different places. And the population in America is huge. Each state's different. They've got a totally different way of consuming music. Likes of, you know, said Walmart, but they were like at the time and still are like a massive seller of, of recorded music. So you've got to you've got to be friendly to that sort of, hey, I'm going out to get my groceries. Oh, here's, you know, here's a Dolly Parton CD I don't have. Cool, they're gonna buy that. But they're less likely to impulse buy something like Queens of Stone Age, unless you get to their second album where they misleadingly titled it. Also from Wikipedia, they had a way around that to to actually get it on the stores in Walmart. So to appease you know those those people that were looking for the the rating or or to pull it, they essentially put warnings in the CD cover. That's everywhere know, to say, yeah. So the album the album's liner notes contain further warning messages for each song, in the style of 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 warning messages given to parents. So for example, Autopilot contains alcohol and sleep deprivation. So they've literally just said in the song or in the liner notes what is there and apparently that was enough to actually get it round without the parental advisory. It's cheeky and it's a really good way of replacing lyrics as well. I've never yeah. been like, I, I, sometimes I quite like seeing lyrics and liner notes and be like, oh yeah, cool, that's what he's saying. But also like leave a bit to the imagination. Like, oh, this is about my ex-girlfriend who, you know, she broke my heart and all that sort of stuff. Like They're just like, right, cool. This, this one's about nudity. Or uh, yeah. <laughs> I think I lost my headache is about paranoid delusions, consumption, and blind faith. Like that's a really, really clever way of doing it. Apparently, it was Nick Oliveri's idea. The same with the the cover art, which is the sort of on the original is is a blue. It's just a blue square with a white line down the bottom with an R in the in the bottom corner. Yeah, but yeah. restricted to everyone. Was it everyone? Everyone anywhere. Everyone everywhere all the time, which I think is used as a uses a sample on Songs of the Deaf. I might be wrong on that. I, I do love the idea that some Walmart executive was given this and then that was them appeased. Like, <laughs> they're clearly taking the piss. But some Walmart executive was just like, all right, okay, I, su- I suppose that's fine. Yes. Like, no. Like, it's, it's not fine. It doesn't actually... Like, it, it, there is adult content in this album, for sure, is it warning wanting of a of of the the the, the label like we're saying? 
Maybe. Walmart might have had a point. <laughs> like, I think it's, you know, it's two-way, though. I mean, these, this Rated R was released on Interscope Records, which is, like, one of, if not, like, the biggest label in 2000. They were releasing Eminem, uh, Dr. Dre. I mean, they, they, they were huge. So if you were going to start threatening to pull CDs from, from the shelves, Interscope could quite as go well then we won't give you the next dr dre or eminem or whatever album we won't we just won't give you any we'll sell it to we'll give it to someone else and you know there's there's a there's a push and pull to this um and i, and I think i think there must have been a, a point of realization where the execs had just been like i think we're being a bit daft now yeah and that was at the time where jimmy iovine was still really involved with with interscope so it's one thing you know some someone in an office going hey we're not going to sell you the rest of this stuff if you don't take this if jimmy Iovine gets on the phone to you and you're the you're the music buyer for for walmart and he's like yeah so stock this or you're not getting this that's that's a threat you know that and that's something he probably would have he would probably would have gone through with as well might be he might not have i don't know i'm sure he's a nice guy i realize i've looked at jimmy Iovine's wikipedia before because i know that picture of him from 2012 like that that picture haunts me but i wasn't familiar with the name he's um there's a really good documentary on netflix about him and dr dre which i thought would be quite self-serving but it's actually really really good going back to like him producing bruce springsteen and getting a start and and all that sort of stuff but uh, i'd imagine that dealing with him on like a on a business level would be intense he'll get his own way eventually well, yeah, and that's I think that's how he got to where he went, he, where he is, you know, head of head was head of music at Apple now. So yeah, you, you're not going to get there by just sort of like, oh, okay, you, you know, okay, we'll, we'll not we'll not send you Queens of Stone Age. Here's some Beyonce. He also founded. Uh, he also founded Beats Electronics. Yep. With Doctor Dre. Yeah. That was clever. That was captured into the Apple market. Yeah, because um, Apple bought Beats, and then along with the contract to buy the actual headphones and all the patents and everything, they like both of them, like Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine, got mad contracts. There was already a, a music streaming service that Dr. Dre was running, and that's what Apple turned into Apple Music. I didn't know that. It was there was a, with Beats. Beats came with a oh, streaming no, yeah. service. Yes, and it was it was like Beats Beats streaming. I don't know what it was named, but it was it was well ahead of its time. Because if you think back to when Beats headphones were coming out, I think people were still listening to music on their phones the old fashioned way, whether it was you know streamed or uh, sorry it was downloaded, or you're listening, you weren't listening to Spotify on the go as much back then. Um, yeah, I don't think but, yeah. Spotify on the go existed. I might be wrong. You're probably right. I think it was a. There was a lot. There was a, a sort of change in, in the market, was when, because there was still a point where we were still downloading music, uploading it through iTunes. Yeah, you might not have been listening to it on an iPod, but you would have had it on an iPhone, or if you were, you know, transferring music over to, you know, an Android device and just listening to it on that. So you might not have had a dedicated MP3 player, but you were listening to it on your phone, and then it wasn't really until for me for. Spotify, I think it was maybe 2014, 15, I want to say, that I started 
Yeah, yeah, I think when, using that. Yeah, when data, when the whole data thing got a bit more accessible, and there was you know Wi-Fi yeah. started sprouting up all over the place, and yeah. even on your phone contract, waited, it was cheaper. I waited until four G, so like I think I had I had Spotify from from quite early on, but I just listened to the ads, and then it was only when four G came out, and I was like, right, okay, I can actually I can actually stream this. Yeah, and well, I say once four G became like you were saying, Tony, uh, affordable. You know, once the sort of the contracts weren't weren't mental, that's when I actually started paying for for Spotify and had yeah. it on the on the go rather than just you know listening to Spotify on on Wi-Fi and then you know downloaded MP3s when when I was walking about. Spotify was a total second coming for for listening to music. It was a different, just something I'd never experienced before. Just having this endless jukebox in your pocket. It's it's so plus points and negative points. I think though, I don't know. It's you know, I like it. But um, you get paralysed by choice. You know when you yes. when you're out. You know if you're, if you're kicking about and you're going to put tunes on to get the bus somewhere or you know go for a walk somewhere, you're paralysed by the choice of oh Christ, what do I listen to? And you spend like I've spent more time in the house sitting trying to figure out what I'm going to listen to on a five minute walk, and I'll sit there for half an hour going up because I I like to listen to albums. Yes, so I like me to listen to an album start to finish. Rather than like making playlists or dipping in and out and you know all that sort of stuff, so yeah, I've spent I've spent half an hour to go for a five minute walk, just I've got the right the right tune. It's the Netflix vibe, isn't it? You know, you you, you sit down, you want to watch a movie or a TV show, but then two hours later, you just went back to the thing you saw in the first two seconds of yeah. your selection. You yeah, know, absolutely. And, and forever getting caught in that loop. But yeah, so I've I've recently been going back to using an iPod where I can, so I've um. Just to, nerd. just today, well, not just well, just today, I've bought. Uh, so my my laptop doesn't have a CD drive, and I'm and rated R. I have on CD, but I don't have it ripped onto into any sort of digital format. So the only way that I've been able to listen to it, other than putting it into this old CD player behind me, which skips every third track, um, is I have to listen to it on Spotify and. I was like, I want to rip this. I want to rip this into, into lossless and put it on an iPod. And I can't do that. because Welcome to 2003, lad. <laughs> so, honestly, so just today arrived mm-hmm. a CD drive. Yeah, <laughs> of course it did. <laughs> so that I can put it on my fucking iPod. <laughs> Fuck me, man. The e- effort, that mate, effort. It's maximum effort. I'm doing it properly. I'm doing well, it the old-fashioned way. Like, if, you, if you rely on these services... Like, and, you know, I've got a love-hate relationship with with Spotify because of the the royalty rates that it pays artists, but it's really handy. It's really handy. Like yeah, if I've if I've got totally. if I've got folk rounds, I'll put records on, and I'll get to that stage where we've had a few drinks, and I know that something bad's going to happen. So that I'm taking that <laughs> Some, off. Someone's going to sit them, on the next one. Putting them away, they're going to get scratched, and you just pop on Spotify so that when someone who's never really had more drinks than I have. Goes, oh man, you're uh, you know, that share song or whatever it is. You're like, right, cool, I can accommodate that. That's brilliant. So it means that every party is great, or every time you've got friends around, they think you're amazing because you've got all the music. Whereas, like back in the day, it's like, oh, have you got anything by like share or ABBA or something totally mad that you've not got? Like, oh no, I don't. Like, oh, f- this guy's an arsehole. So it's love going to be a shape party. Yeah, love yeah. going to a party and you've got all your tunes in your on your iPod or on your maybe on your phone. Getting yeah, that that's, aux that's... cable and being like, here comes some fire, boys. <laughs> that's when you end up in the kitchen till yawn time in the morning, listen to your own tunes. 
Uh, going, oh, yeah, <laughs> man, I, this, please. Listen, I wrote this song when I was... Uh, and you end up talking absolute nonsense, listening to your own tunes. At least it's kind of like eradicates that side of parties. But I'd like to think I mean, pre, it still happens. Pre-Spotify, if someone dropped Meatloaf, then I lost my shit. In a good way or a bad way. something you always had. In a good way or a bad way. In a good way. In a good way. It's like, oh, by the dashboard, like, here we fucking go. Oh, that's, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's what you want. That's what you want. That's a jam. That's a jam. But this is not Queens of the Stone Age. No, it definitely isn't. So let's, let's get back on it. Let's get back on it, Rated R. Where, where do we start? After Rated R, so you've gone from Britpop, you've gone into Queens of the Stone Age and Rated R. Where did you go after this, Tony? Oh, I wasn't expecting that one. Um, Christ, where did I go? I, I honestly, so did, did did you try all the drugs and then? then no, go I didn't. So a year afterwards, first, in fact, almost a, or more than a year afterwards, September first, two thousand one, I started working in uh, Virgin Megastore on Princess Street, which was which was huge. R.I.P. Yeah. Mm. Fallen Brothers, which, and I was 16 when I started working there, and I did not know my arsehole from my elbow. I, I like music, and I managed to get through the interview with enough whatever to convince Daryl, who's my manager, that uh, I was in my 20s. <laughs> and some of the some of the folk I worked with realized that I was quite young and impressionable. So, like, you know, I was working in a three-floor three record shop, and I said to, you know, folk were like, oh, so what kind of music do you like? Because that was the first question. So I was like, oh, yeah, I like uh, Queens of Stone Age and Green Day. And some of them were like, oh, right, you're beyond help, see you later. But most of them, like, kind of took me under the wing. And they were like, oh, if you like this, you'll like, you know, so one guy was like, oh, Fugazi, Fugazi. That's all you ever need to listen to, pal, Fugazi. Listen to that. Uh, we guy, a uh, guy, Tony got me into Granddaddy and Sparkle Horse and all that sort of stuff. And then there was like Dawn who worked in the um, stockroom was like Judas Priest. And that was all she listened to was Judas Priest. And she got me into Judas Priest and that was amazing. And then like all, all loads of bits and pieces. So from then, like I had a year of like, I heard Lost Art of Keeping a Secret, went to Tea in the Park, which was the, my first festival, my first and first time I ever seen a live band. I didn't even know how live bands work or how music worked. I knew music it's theory. Big, yeah, it was. It was brilliant. But I knew how like music theory worked, and I'd done all this nonsense at school. But like, I'd never seen four four people on a stage the size of like you know the estate I used to live on playing music, <laughs> and that was a totally you mind. Never lived it, man. Yeah, it was a total. But it was. It was a total mind altering thing. And then because we'd been we'd had a couple of beers for fifteen and blah blah blah, we we're having a great time. And I went off to the slam tent for a bit and saw some absolutely shit mad nonsense like techno and dance stuff that i'll still don't understand and i went back to the main stage to try and find my pals thinking that i just like oh we'll see you at the main stage before fun loving criminals so yeah okay that doesn't happen at festivals but ended up like you nope. bouncing down the whole way through the fun loving criminal right at the front and finding them in the middle of like you know just in front of the stage but it was a total mind altering thing so like from queens of stone age i cannot remember there was no clear, there wasn't a clear path. It was kind of like a really drunk zigzag home to to the next to the next thing. I think the next big album I remember after that was Granddaddy Software Slump, which is a total change in direction. And then from that... It kind of makes sense, though, because you've got, like, we've already talked about, like, the 
or mentioned the, the the contributions that are on this album and how it was kind of Josh Home and Friends. Mm. Like, there's a lot of influences and there's a lot of different tracks and there's a lot of sounds on this album. So naturally, almost, it makes sense to me that coming from this album, you could have picked up anything, really. Yeah, I think it was a combination of of hearing this album, which was, I think, the second most influential album I've ever heard. I, I still think that Manic Street Preacher's Gold Against the Soul, which I'd mentioned to, to Lav, was like, would have been my... F- maybe my first choice to, to talk about but wouldn't have fit in really but like rated r was my sort of was my gateway drug to get to go back to the drug references like that was the gateway to like oh it can sound like this it doesn't have to sound like the auto-tune nonsense on the radio or the poppy nonsense or you know all the stuff you're exposed to when you're when you're 15 and because i'm like the oldest out of three i didn't have an older sibling to like be like hey you know here's sonic youth I didn't have I didn't yeah. have that, which was kind of good and bad in the same way. So when I went in that record shop, I learned so much. It was yeah. it was like a that was that was the awakening, and and I think rated R was a sort of like the gateway. Like ah yes, there's more out there. Here we go. That was the same for for Lav and I. I mean, we've we've both our first episode was on hybrid theory, yeah. you know, and that for us was sort of our gateway drug was, you know, this this isn't Spice Girls, yeah. Yes, yeah. this is. But it's still, five. but it's still a boy band. But they're playing guitars and they're screaming and they're shouting and they've got tattoos and they're synchronized headbanging. This is, this is brilliant. And the guitarist is wearing headphones and that's provocative. <laughs> like, why is he doing that? Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. So that, that's what makes total sense. I mean, we've not really discussed it yet. I'm not massively a Queens of the Stone Age fan, personally. Like, I've been around the band, not personally. Like, I know the band, like, I've had friends sort of listen to them and refer to them. Uh, I m- listened more to Songs of the Deaf. When I was listening to, to Rated R, I was surprised how much I actually knew. And yeah. I've clearly listened to it at some point over the years. I've just never, I just never stuck with Queens of the Stone Age. Like I say, it was my first, first sort of album that I bought by accident. And I've seen on the video here, Tony's been thumbing through the album uh is that the double the the, the second yes yeah, so the second disc is a, second disc has got a cover it's a div- um, it's a dvd is this is there not a, is there a song a on it um oh, never say never never say never romeo. and then it's a cover from by romeo romeo something what are they called again oh, oh, I, I read this earlier me. on and didn't have a bonus point. honestly is one of the best covers i've ever heard and it was that song that then made me listen to the album again and again, and be like this, and I and yeah. I really got into it. it. What surprised me? Who'll be the was, next in line with a cover as well? Actually, on the, the bonus tracks, on the bonus that that bonus one had the the video for yeah. um, "Feel Good Hit of the Summer," and I was like, "Oh fucking hell, that yeah. video was mental." That's the video that you would only see at like one a.m. if you'd left MTV two on, yeah. Um, by accident type thing it's and you I was you wouldn't was see it on expect, during the day yeah and that was what you you wouldn't expect that at the time you wouldn't expect to, to have like a video a video a video a video on a cd that was that was totally mind-changing but yeah, you know so there was, and there was music tracks on it so you put it in your cd player and it plays some tracks but you put it in a computer and it played a video that was mind-blowing Something else I can use my new fucking desktop. Yeah, there we go. Yes, I can test that out, see if it still works. Do you know what you can do with that file? You can put it on YouTube, mate. Have you heard of YouTube? (laughs) 
Fucking you witchcraft, can, you mean? You could pirate the video and you can maybe get some views before they take it down. Get it on the AOGB. We've got YouTube, by the way. No one knows because no one's ever watched the pods. Because <laughs> we don't do a video. Because we've never... I, I just realised, actually, we don't include YouTube in the socials, so no one ever knew it was there. The deep links are there. If people want to find it, they can find it, but it'll probably only have six episodes on there because we forgot to keep making the YouTube videos. Yeah. No, totally. <laughs> the... Um, Rated R for me, like, I remember Feel Good Hit the Summer and I, and I remember the loss that I've keeping a secret. But for me, this this album sort of resonated with, like, the guy the guys older than me. So, like, in my school, we were actually quite chummy across the years. I don't know if it was the same for you guys. But it was the guys that were maybe, like, two, three years above me that were like, Queens of the Stone Age are fucking amazing and you should listen to them. And I was like, no, but what about Linkin Park? So, like, I didn't quite... I didn't quite get Queens of the Stone Age really. They just sort of went over my head. I'm like, oh yeah, that's that's a ref and that's pretty cool. And oh, drugs, woo. And then so, songs for the deaf. Oh yeah, Dave Grohl. Dave Grohl's cool at the moment. Let's let's like. But I never, I never a hundred percent got into the band per se. So it's uh, going back listening to it. I've sort of enjoyed it, but not massively. If that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, that thing. The thing with music is it's subjective, and it's not. It's not going to be for everyone. Oh, of course. Um, I'd, I'd, one of the reasons I love them is because they've not stayed the same. And obviously, like we we're saying about like the supergroup side of things, like which I hadn't thought about. But there's there's different people on every album, and there's 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 a core through. Shit, only like, only the first three albums with Nick Oliveri and Josh Homme, and then or Josh Homme, and then it just changes. And when Josh Homme, uh, when Nick Oliveri turns up at his ex-wife or ex-girlfriend's house with a shotgun and gets booted out of the band and stuff and it all changes but it's been yeah it's one of those yeah, bands that have progressed through you know they've not done what I, I, I hate to say it but like Bad Religion have done like I love Bad Religion but you know what you're getting with a Bad Religion song there's going to be a lot of cool harmonies there's going to be vocal harmonies oh. there's going to be guitar harmonies and there's going to be some cool songs and you're going to need a dictionary to figure out what the lyrics mean. It's going to be great, but it's the same every album. There's very little progression and Bad Religion have done, what, 20 albums? Odd. And you could pick Jeez. you could pick a song from the most recent one and one from the middle and one from the first and you could put them on the one album and say it was... But yeah. at the same time, th- Queens I, of I Stone like... Age, if you're, a, if you're a total sad sack like I am, you can start with a self-titled album. And go right the way through to villains, which I hated at first. But you can go right the way through and listen to it, and it makes sense, like as a sequential, almost like a mass, like a, a suite of music. But then yeah, you can also go back, moving forward to the first from the last track on villains. You can go back to the first track on Queens of Stone Age, and it makes sense. It doesn't feel disjointed, or it doesn't feel like oh, they were so young then, and look what they did when they were kids. I think with them, they they started life. I mean, you had Nick, Nick, and Josh started life in chaos with with that with that breakup, and then Nick wasn't on the first Queens of Stone Age album full time. His first Queens of Stone Age album he was on full time was Rated R, and then he left after. It was after some uh, lullabies? Uh, well, I think it was halfway through. Was it halfway through recording lullabies or something? Was it? Yeah, he was. He was fired. Is is what I've read. He was. Josh, is it home or I've always pronounced it home, but is it home he, or home? He introduces himself as Josh Josh Homme. Um, and I'd, I'd always said Homme, but um, I've always said Homme as well. Uh, but in the same way people mispronounce my second name, 
who might argue. Uh, but yeah, he, he does some like yep. he does some um, show on Apple Music called the Alligator Hour, um, right. and he introduces himself as Joshua Homme. So, no, thanks for the correction. Homme has said that it, you know he was fired, and it does come down to the fact that there was rumours around his uh, Olivier. Olive, now I'm fucked for pronunciations. Olivier. Oliveri. 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 Thank you. Um, Oliveri's potential domestic abuse and you know if it ever came to light then he was like I can't have anything to do with you and then it came to light so he sacked him so I used to think that Nick was was the lead singer because the first ever picture of the Queens of Stone Age that I saw was in an, an issue of Kerrang and it was a picture of Nick Oliveri naked playing Rock in Rio um, he was, arre- yep. was the story was that he got arrested for playing naked because he didn't know it was illegal to be naked in Brazil. Of all the places you'd think it'd be all right to be naked, I think exactly. You I can't believe. Right. Yeah, but, under a giant statue of Jesus. <laughs> is that, sure, is, yeah, is that real? There's pretty pictures of Jesus with his wab out. So, <laughs> in a fucking nappy. <laughs> but that was that was the first time I ever I ever they they entered my consciousness was they got one of them got arrested and it was a picture of Nick singing. So I always just assumed that Nick was the guy. He was he was Queens of the Stone Age, and it wasn't until the video of No One Knows that you see Joshua Homme singing and actually being the lead singer, and, and Nick just playing along, and obviously Dave on drums. Like Dave Grohl was in them as well, and then you realise that no, yeah. he he only's only in for that album, and you got Mark Mark Lanigan. He he joined full time right after Rated R. So he was yes. he was touring with them. He was on a couple of tracks on Rated R, I think. But um, yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah he definitely, is. totally. He was on. Uh, he did the backing vocals on um, track four and eleven, and then he's the lead vocal on track eight. Yeah, and I think that was one of the, the weird things about the about the album was you had Josh Homme doing lead vocals on pretty much most of it, but then there's like three songs with Nick Oliveri, and Nick Oliveri going from his like from autopilot, which is totally like he's got a brilliant voice on it. Which is quite comparable to Jeff uh, to Josh Holmes, and then the two like mad Mondo generator esque like I'm gonna bat your head in, and then um, and then to Mark Lanigan, and I think it was something that came up in the press at the time was like oh well we've got three th- we've got three singers, yes, um, yeah, which that, not yeah. that many bands I I I can't think of an example where there's a band that got three singers I might be totally off the mark with that. But that was the, the way those songs were at the time were performed were the, by those three people. Yeah. This is kind of the thing that sort of maybe disillusioned me as well when I was much younger and, and like sort of the, the older guys that I thought were like cool as fuck were like sort of telling me about this this band as well. Like they were referencing uh, Nick Oliveri and Mark Lanigan and I'm like, who, who the fuck are these guys? So they were, they, I'm sure they were fans of like Caius and sort of their earlier stuff. And you know, for these for this to come into to Queens of the Stone Age, maybe for them it was like, fuck, the super group are amazing. But for me, I was just like, but is it Chester Bennington? No. So fuck <laughs> off. You Back know? to Lincoln Park. Was it was it was yeah. it really? I think with the grunt the I think the grunge thing that, that Lav mentioned earlier is that um Josh Homme played guitar with the Screaming Trees, which I think like opens up a huge can of worms if you're going into that sort of Seattle grunge oh, scene I mean, at the time. Well, the first so the very first so before they were called Queens of Stone Age, they, were, they they went by Gamma Ray and they released an EP called the Gamma Ray EP. 
They had to get that changed after the German power metal band threatened to sue them. So um, while they recorded as Gamma Ray, it was um, Matt Cameron of Soundgarden was in them. Yes, yeah. You know, um, he was. No, was he? Was he not? Was he not Pearl Jam? He was Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. There was both of them, and, yes. and no doubt would have played in Temple of the Dog and things as well. Which, yeah, all that sort of stuff. And then when you go back through, like, I recently read uh, Mark Lanigan's book, which is pretty intense. Like, if you if you sort of dig back into that scene, so you go from like Queens of Stone Age backwards to like Mark Lanigan screaming trees, and then Mark Lanigan basically doing smack with Kurt Cobain, Lane Staley. Like all the and all the nonsense that sort of ensued from that. That's that's a pretty intense backstory for a band that were basically based out of like the Palm Desert in the middle of nowhere, where people either go like play golf or die. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I, honestly, I, now that you meant you mentioned Lane Staley, there I was. Uh, it's I think was it is, is it was it the day was today the the anniversary of his death. Um, no, yeah, I think yesterday was his birthday. Yesterday so. was his birthday. That was it. So I was listening to Alison Chains Unplugged uh, to this morning, and on the, at the end of one of the songs, Lane comes on and says, "Like I think this has been one of the best gigs we've played in the last three years." And I, I think it's Je- Jerry just kind of pipes up in the background, it's just like, "Lane, it's the only gig we've played in the last three years." He's just that. Out of his fucking face <laughs> on smack that he just didn't have a clue what the fucking day was. Yeah, if you want a really depressing read, read, read uh, Mark Lanigan's book because it's pretty much all heroin and fighting. I mean, we're talking about how it's all related and connected as well. Like the drummer for Rated R, or sorry, the drummer for tracks one, six, seven, and nine on Rated R is Gene Trontman. Troutman? Troutman? Trotman. Uh, who's the drummer for Eagles of Death Metal, which is Josh Holmes' other band, or one of his other bands? Yeah, with with Jesse Hughes, who apparently used to be a, a speechwriter for the Republican oh, Party. Wow, really? Oh yeah, they're full on Republican. Yeah, the, the, yeah. the funny again. Th- thanks for mentioning Eagles of Death Metal, and we've had Tea in the Park come up. So the one Tea in the Park that I've ever been to was in two thousand and five, when Queens of the Stone Age were playing, and there was a rumour, there was a, a blank space on the stage where, like, the, the smaller bands would play. I was like, the I've forgotten what the name of the tent is. Uh, I'd just been to see your codename as Milo, and... Oh, they were brilliant. And then, oh, that one, we're going to be talking about that one one day, I can't wait. Um, so, yeah, talk, so I'd seen your codename as Milo, and the, the security guard was like, because I was like, who's on next? And he was like, oh, I can't say. I was like, why not? And he was like, it's a it's a secret one because they they usually would have like just like a question mark or just like a blank space on the on the roster mm-hmm. for the day, yeah. and apparently it was due to be Eagles of Death Metal, but for one for one reason or another, whether they needed the time to make up for delays and things, it got pulled, and then later on that day, Queens of the Stone Age were actually playing as well, so it could have absolutely happened. But then this wild yeah. rumour that Dave Grohl was on the site was kicking around and he wasn't... Well, he was. We've talked about 2015 the part before because uh, I, this is where I saw Audio Slave. So Queen's Eagles of Death Metal played on the Sunday on the NME tent, Radio 1 NME, and Foo Fighters played the Saturday. 
uh, on main stage and Queens of Stone Age played the Sunday on main stage. So they were all they were in there. Ross over the weekend. In the area. Yeah. It's weird actually because I'm talking to, like back to festivals, I saw on the Songs for Death tour, they played at um, Reading and Leeds. So a bunch of us went down from Glasgow to Leeds and um, there was it was Mondo Generator then someone else who was involved with like Mondo Generator and Mark Lanigan and then it was Mark Lanigan so they turned and then Queens of Stone Age were on like on the main stage later on so what they did was they turned those three sets and, and basically like a Just massive desert jam. fest on it <laughs> it was yeah it pretty much was like desert fest before desert fest and it was like the same so they just like folk like drummers kept walking off stage and other drummers would walk on and like folk would like swap guitars and stuff it was like it was a total it was pretty much like a three-hour jam session and they got around like you know you know like stage changeovers and all that sort of stuff just by like keeping going and then mark lanigan and uh nick Oliveri buggered off to the main stage and played with queens of stonage in the evening but they'd done they did like a a full-on like three-hour set and i can't remember for the life of me who it was that was had that middle set it was someone who was relatively unknown but it was a really mad sort of like you weren't expecting it. You went in for Mondo Generator and you were going to like maybe see what happened in between and then watch Mark Lanigan. But actually you just stayed for the whole the whole three hours. That's how I remember it. It was a long time ago. That's, uh, That's impressive to, to, to see the breadth of, of artists that they've worked with and, and, and what they've done with it. I didn't particularly keep with them. I, th- I think I listened to... Lullabies to Paralyze, Paralyze. What is that? It. Yeah. Yeah. Lullabies. Yeah. Paralyze. I I gave it a spin. I gave it a shot. Again, not not particularly loving Queens of the Stone Age, but being like, yeah, no, they're 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 cool. I'll I'll give them a shot, but just never really stuck with them from from there on. It's a lot more subdued than um than Rated R and Songs for the Deaf, and it's definitely missing that sort of Oliverian input to a lot of it but it's a i think it's a very good album it's got a lot more it's got a lot more mark Lanning. they became a lot more radio friendly i feel after with with lullabies to paralyze i suppose if you if you want to go down that route so you've with era vulgaris you've you've got i mean make it with you is you know absolutely just one of those songs that you can just play any time of the day anywhere yeah or at your wedding that was my first dance yes it was um i but it's it's that was what there's um so there's interviews with Brant Bjork from from Caius who has sort of kind of gone on the record and said that that was what Josh Homiel was wanted to do he wanted to be more accessible but still keep the the sort of dirty side to it which I think came out in like the, the last two albums I think are are, are amazing um they're totally yeah. different totally different but they still fit in with the rest of what Queens of Stone Age have done interesting you mentioned about the trying to keep that sort of effeminate side to the the sound using the name queens of the stone age rather than kings of the stone age is something that he's actually uh got a got a quote on um the queens of stone age name was chris goss it was a nickname while they were in caius yes because they were doing a lot of smoking (laughs) apparently but uh the the kings, he, uh, Josh Homme is quoted as saying, kings would be too macho. The kings of the Stone Age wear armour and have axes and wrestle. The queens of the Stone Age hang out with the kings of the Stone Age's girlfriends while they wrestle. And also it was the name given... <laughs> <laughs> and also it was a name given to us by Chris Goss. He gave us the name queens of the Stone Age. Rock should be heavy enough for the boys and sweet enough for the girls. 
That way, everyone's happy and it's more of a party. Kings of the Stone Age is too lopsided. Kings of the makes sense. Kings of the Stone Age is sort of like Man of War esque, like metal, yeah. isn't it? It is like it is bare chested. It's probably loincloths rather than leather. Like it is, it's it's menly men. Yeah, that's full on Saxon. Yeah, it's full on Saxon denim yeah, and leather. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's oh, yeah, yeah. It smells like Bo. That that name. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like it's like all the like all the stoner bands you get now who are. And a lot of them are really good, but it's a lot of Caius worship, and a lot of it's like, oh, we're going to make things sound shit because that's how it sounded then. And they're just playing the same stuff, which is basically like, you know, it's all rip-offs of Caius tunes. I think for people, when they say Caius to me, I never listened to Caius, shocker, but I think a lot of people compared to Mastod- early Mastodon at the time. I think it was the same sort of, if you take Caius as a starting point for for queens of stone age and take early mastodon it's a kind of it's a it's a similar trajectory without the the massive lineup swap and the name change if you thought of if you, if you start thinking of queens of stone age as starting with caius and going through till now then you've pretty much got the same timeline ish as mastodon. mastodon you know if you go from you know early mastodon to to more recent mastodon there's definitely been a progression. Yeah. But it's still definitely and Mastodon. It's still definitely Mastodon, but then how much, like, some, there's, I get in the same argument with, with uh, people about Manic Street Preachers, which seems like a total, like, wild card thrown there, but they, they had their first four albums that were amazing and then started going downhill and a lot of it was because they signed, as far as I know, they signed a, a recording contract which meant that they had to produce an album every two years. So instead of, as a band, being able to sit back and go, right, cool, we've just done a tour, I'm going to sit back and hang out with my wife, I'm going to see my friends, I'm going to do whatever, maybe going to write some new tunes. You go, they end up coming off a massive, intensive touring schedule to come back for the label to be like, and Mastodon had, uh, where I think still are on Warner, like, hey, yes, yeah, so uh, A&R guy from Warner here, yeah, my predecessor got fired, but uh, yeah, where's your next album? Where's your next album? Where's your next album? And they would basically be like forced to to produce something new. And I think that's where a lot of bands go wrong. They yeah. end up, one, I mean, it's you know it's well documented that, that, that the music industry is, is pretty shit for, for artists. You, know, you end up signing a contract when you're like 21, sometimes younger that means that you have to keep if you want to keep being a musician whether you're in this you know whether you're in the name band or you're a, a lone ranger you have to fulfill this commitment to put I've an album. seen conversations with with artists on, on twitter where they've they also say don't don't just think because a an in, it's an indie label that they're any better or or worse than a major there are indie labels that have just as shady contracts um, oh yeah. Um, oh, victory! Victory was a, a massive they, example. They own songs in per- perpetuity. You'll never, so yeah. they will never ever own the music again. You've signed, you've signed it away. You've given the rights to that song completely away. And just in the news today is uh, John John Lydon um, for oh, yeah, yeah. for being pissed yeah. off that is that music that he sung in was being used in a Danny Boyle film. But um, the Sex Pistols have said that it's a it was a it was a three person vote majority rule and the judges ruled in their favor 
Whereas, like, John said, well, I didn't say so, and I never agreed to that three-person rule, so we should all have a veto. But the judge has quite rightly, I think, gone ahead and said, no, nope, uh, you already signed, actually, you signed your rights away to say what could be done with this music already. So th- this was yeah, just a matter of course. It was just a, a politeness. Yeah, he, he, did it, he did it three ways, actually. So he, he signed away his publishing rights, he signed away his rights to the master copyrights, but he also signed an agreement, and I think it was probably Malcolm McLaren's doing, he signed a, a band agreement, and it was the band agreement that was signed between a lot of them. I think it was when Sid Vicious was still an alive human being that um, the majority would rule, because it's punk and it's anarchy and all this sort of nonsense that they all made up on the spot. But that was part of the you know one of the three agreements that he signed was a band agreement saying that hey if i think this is a bad idea and you think it's a good idea you guys go ahead i'll just sit back and the thing is it's in his interest it's in it's, his interest he's just happy his names in the for news. his songs to be used in this film yeah oh absolutely yeah because he's, he's he can't sell butter anymore <laughs> so what's he going to do <laughs> let's make his own you know, the, the, the punk, massive punk anti-capitalist, I'm going to sell some He butter. was in the news not so long ago, actually, for being a total prick with the whole anti-mask, anti-vax bullshit, was he not? He was, yeah. Like, hanging out a window somewhere, getting photographed, being basically just a tosser. A tosser. He's just a British tosser, uh, uh, English yeah, tosser. Just, just. Like, well, yeah, it was, like, it was, but it was a full-on, like, Brits abroad, sort of like, you know, you'll see it in, like, you know, in the news every sort of now and again, especially in the international, it's like, oh, yeah. Brits abroad cause havoc in Tenerife, and I'm just John Lydon with his. Uh, oh, oh, he's a he's a mad bad. <laughs> I'm glad you brought up Mastodon though, Keith, because there's a band who I definitely enjoyed the earlier albums, and then fell out with for the later ones. And it's interesting to be told that it's possibly due to some record industry fuckery. To, to sort of push things forward and you listen to an, an album like I mean my favourite Mastodon album is Leviathan isn't it uh, isn't it everyone's because it's, it's fucking great is, is that the easy answer is that the easy go to I thought I thought Crack the Sky was the, the one that people like to jizz over Crack the Sky is Crack the Sky is good but it's a totally different again it's a, it's a progression mm-hmm. and Crack the Sky was like a, was a prog concept album and Leviathan was the concept album as well but like Crack the Sky was a was a concept, whereas Leviathan, it was a concept as well. But it was like it was them being raw and just going for it. And Brand Daler, the, the the drummer, doesn't sing on it that much. I think he maybe does backing vocals here and there. And then as soon as the way I've read about it and heard about it is that as soon as the the record executives got involved and like, oh, he can actually sing like a human. And I think it was not long after. Brent Hines got knocked out by someone from System of a Down and lost his the voice drummer. and all that yeah. sort of nonsense. It was the guitarist got knocked out and then they figured out the drummer could sing, so they figured like, well, let's let's just let this guy sing all the nice bits. And don't get me wrong, he can do it. He's f- absolutely brilliant at it live. Like he will he will play his mad drum parts and sing like a fucking angel, and it's great and it's a really good pro- progression for that band. But it's not what all the diehard fans are like. They want to hear Leviathan. Yeah. From what I can, and that's sorry, that's one of those. But I think for one, they're one of those bands where a lot of people have them in this like snapshot of a moment, and for a lot of them, it's it's Leviathan. It's like right, that's that's Mastodon. This is Mastodon. Yeah. Within the confines of this CD, 
this is what they do in the same way that people are really, really, really into Pantera. And when you ask them, like, what music you're Pantera. into? Oh, I, 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 I like hell. Pantera. That's I, all I, I like yeah. is fucking Pantera. Yeah, We've had yeah, this conversation in the studios before. Pantera yes. fans just like Pantera yes, and nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> and there's no progression. And, and they will they will totally gloss over Pantera's glam yeah. escapades, yeah. which is fine by me. <laughs> you know, that's, that's great. But with, with Mastodon, it's the same. It's They don't want anything outside of that. That sort of snapshot leviathan that's great that's a great album and it is a great album but they don't want to see anything else they don't want to see any progression and with a lot of people certainly i've spoken to same with queens of stone age they want to see they want to see songs of the death again they don't want to see the progression through lullabies to paralyze to ever vulgaris to light clockwork to, to villains and even villains their most recent album it was produced by mark yeah. ronson after spending years and years and years of producing their own stuff to to a very high standard and doing a very good job of it they decided to get mark ronson in and i kind of get that i kind of get that from a like a musician's point of view by like hey cool let's 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 get some other dickhead and, and mark ronson he's he's high. fine he's like he's peak you want your album to do good you put mark ronson's name on it it will sell it will make millions i i, I hate him i don't like him i, I hate mark ronson for what he did to the zootons fuck that guy Valerie by the Zootons is the only Valerie anyone should ever play the fucking Amy Winehouse version only got big because she died there you go I said it yes I would I would absolutely 100% Zootons, agree with that the Zootons um, Valerie yeah, is it was perfection brutal. like it is an amazing song and they butchered it he butchered it yeah it was it's, it was like one of those um, I was in a pub the other day actually and they, they had this um, soundtrack on instead of playing like normal tunes or having an identity they had it was basically like cover That's versions Mark yeah. Ronson. Yeah. didn't like Mark Ronson make like two or three of those sort. albums where it's just yeah. him him doing sessions yeah and it was all like dead depressing yeah it was like all dead depressing yeah because the Amy Winehouse one was a BBC session I think and Mark Ronson produced it and it was just it was so depressing like every every song was done in the most imagine the most uplifting song you can think of Valerie <laughs> and it was done yeah and it was done by it was done by someone who was clearly in need of antidepressants not taking them and doing a really half arse cover of a song that should not be done and i think the only person that's ever done a really good cover of something that they shouldn't have done is johnny cash doing her yeah good shout yeah yeah good yeah very much so but uh, you know that was that was I hate to say it, but almost better than you know. There was a lot more balls to it than the original, and if you think the original was done by Nine Inch Nails in their prime, and yet it's Johnny Cash pretty much looking at his deathbed, going, "I'm covering this first. Soon. I'm doing this one." It had no business. Yeah, I'm, I'm going like to quote do this. something Lav said before. It had oh, no business being as good as it was, and like that song still gives me gives oh. gives me goosebumps. But what you were saying about, and that was Rick Rubin. That was Rick Rubin's input to it was getting Johnny Cash to do these mad, mad, just, just mad these tunes, huge you know, parts as and, well um, on, the, on the piano. Ridiculous. Yeah. But what you were saying about um, sort of the progression of bands and stuff like really sort of reminded me of of Incubus and that people only want to listen to science. And we've covered Morning View before because Morning View is one of my like potentially my rated R, you know, for for me and 
I've kept with Incubus and I've followed them through the, the years, not to say that I've enjoyed each album to the same level as as the other albums, but I know a lot of people who were sort of wavering over Morning View and then as soon as A Crow Left came out, they were gone and they've never looked back. And I think it's a shame that, that you can be a fan of yeah. a band, but you only want to listen to that one you know, one or two albums that they did in that era. Yeah, I think I think different bands handle it differently. I think some bands have handled the progression through, and it is it's it's a daunting career. If you if you think about starting off as a band, playing to like you know five year mates in a pub, to five years later headlining festival stages, and getting money thrown at you and record contracts and publishing contracts and agency contracts and merchandising contracts and all this sort of nonsense get just getting chucked at you. And then trying to keep your head about it and trying to keep keep your head in the music without going off and be like, oh shit, well, I could I could write a tune backstage or you know, write a tune in the van on the way down the road, or uh, I could go and get totally shit faced with Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top. Yeah. I know what I'd rather do. I'd be tugging his beard. <laughs> but it's a it's a hard thing to keep that it's hard thing to keep sort of genuine when you're when you're in that position where everything's getting chucked at you and it, it, it's it is a hard thing. It's not it's not something you ever expect, so you and you don't expect it to last. So you grab it and you and you hold on to it and that's it. And you you're holding on for it for dear life and you're not thinking about you stop thinking about the continuity with you. You stop thinking about how this new album is going to fit with the next album. You just think that, all right, so on that first album, we had a budget of whatever change we had in our pockets. And then you're going to a stage where a record label's paying, they're not just paying for the studio time and the producer, but they're paying for your own time. Yeah. And they're giving you advances and they're giving you all the, all the fancy, you know, the sides, you know, all the sides that you get and, you know, we roast potato here <laughs> and a wee bag of cocaine there and it's, it's 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 a daunting thing and it's it's quite hard to keep that 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 drive and keep that sort of motivation to keep doing things the way you want to do it and hold your own as well. If someone's dangling in some in some cases hundreds of thousands of pounds in front of you saying, Hey I think do an album. We covered let's, it let's this sort of with, with Bleed American. Um because Bleed American was Jimmy World's fucking Hail Mary, to be honest. Um, they'd been signed to a label. They'd struggled and not really got much much further. And then they got dropped by a label and they went and paid for themselves to get an album made. And the the producer had to basically do it for free on the basis that he knew what he was making was fucking decent. So that was, they ended up touring and doing it like they, they became, after being signed to a major for probably the best part of like six years and doing a few albums, they effectively became an indie band again to then get re-signed by another major label, which was back onto DreamWorks Records, um, which is which was a, a, a subsidiary of Interscope, I believe. Um, DreamWorks was David Geffen, S- Steven Spielberg, and... So they were linked yeah. with... Uh, so it was an offshoot yes. of Geffen, Geffen's label, and then they made Jurassic Park, and all was right with the all was right with the world. Sort of what you were saying as well, Tony, about like sort of being in that contract and and like sort of getting signed and getting money chucked at you stuff like that. We're gonna cover 
Leviathan at some point. I think it's pretty much a, an album for both of us, Lav. But like looking at Mastodon as well, 2002 for Remission, 2004 for Leviathan, 2006 for Blood Mountain, 2009 for Crack the Sky. These guys just kept on pushing out albums. Yeah. And they did, they did massive tours as well. They did huge, huge, huge yeah. tours for every album. Around all of this as well, what I sort of remember seeing develop and happen, and I was a bit like, I'm a bit surprised Mastodon are doing this, and it probably makes more sense that Mastodon didn't actually do it, was their merch. You could buy Mastodon panties. Like, you could buy, like, Mastodon fucking track pants and, and trackies <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and not just t-shirts. You know, you could have a Mastodon mug. You could have a Mastodon, like beer thing that kept your beers cold or whatever and i always thought this this isn't what i thought mastodon was this isn't the band that i thought they were is to indulge all this merch you know that's the that's the warner brothers money yeah i think it was warner brothers but um yeah i think that they got a it was um and it used to be quite a thing sort of back before pretty much before napster was you'd get if you were a band on a label then you went on tour, the label would give you X amount of money. It was called tour support. And it eventually came off your royalties and you ended up paying it anyway. But it meant when you went on tour, instead of that shitty little like sprinter van that's going to break down before you get to Bradford, we're going to put you on a nightliner. And you know, you're going to have staff and you're going to have stagehands and you're going to have merchandise. And I think that was the era that was, so that was what, 2004? So, you know, they were, they were still they were still pumping that to try and get the make up the sort of losses on the recorded music with the merchandising rights and that was one of the things that that crept in not long after Napster was okay well here's a contract and we're we're going to have your music but we're also going to have your your image rights and your, name and your and merchandising your, yeah. rights and your name and yeah. oh, we're going to get you sponsored by this this brand of sticks I don't use that brand of sticks. Well, you do now because you're getting them for free, but they're shit. But yeah, but they've got their name on it and the, the brand are going to give us 10 grand per tour. Joe and Jordan's why, metal sticks, anyway. Oh, yeah. I remember them. And that's, yeah. and that's why that's why you get so many, you know, you used to get loads of folk like chucking their drumsticks and chucking their plectrums and chucking shit into the crowd. Okay, fair enough. It's cool for, it's cool for the fans because, hey, I've got a wee keepsake from this from this gig, but also it's advertising. Yeah. And that's that's what a lot of the music industry is now, which is... It's a shame because it takes it away from from the music rather than making it about the music. But it's it helps the bands get on the road and do that relentless touring. And you know, I absolutely know what I'd do if I had, you know, if I had the option of touring the UK in the back of a broken down transit van or doing it in a, a nightliner where I could have you know sleep on a even a seat. You get a bed. You get a bed in a nightliner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, instead of you know. I've done tours with drummers sleeping on top of amplifiers in the back of transit vans that I'd probably still be in prison for driving. The, the comfiest place I ever found in a, in a transit van was underneath the driver's seat. There was usually space enough for you to slide under. Oh, the old transit vans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. get right under because yeah, was... under the, um, the 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 supports of the seat, there were a good like it's a good box. You could slide your feet underneath it, and then as long as no one. St- rolled onto your head in the morning you were all right i was yeah, just that's, looking that's... at the albums for for mastodon and they're mostly on relapse and reprise records and then the one yeah. that, the one that made me go ooh was in my opinion the worst mastodon album is the hunter and that was reprise and roadrunner 
or Roadrunner. Shit. Because I know yeah. no Relapse has still got the rights to the first couple. Uh, I always thought it was Warner Warner Brothers that went to... Oh, is Reprise not part of Warner? That's kind of what I was looking for. I thought that's maybe what, what, what that was going to be. Yeah, Reprise is part of... Is owned by Warner. So... Yeah. Subsidiaries. Yeah. That was a... That was a time. Because I, I remember listening to once more around the sun and being like mm, this is this is okay i don't mind this i can listen to this yeah but the hunter was too too much too far so kind of going full circle back to queens of the stone age if i was to just listen to the most recent album villains after listening to rated r for a week i probably wouldn't really get it it would probably be best to listen to the the discography in order to sort of ease myself into it perhaps yeah, but for for a really weird example, my mum is a huge, huge David Bowie fan, and on like Clockwork, Josh Homme sounds like David Bowie in a couple of tracks, and that's one album that I recommend to her. I was like, you should listen to this; you'd like it. He sounds he sounds like David Bowie, and you wouldn't get that in isolation. And if you if you if you started on that album, and then went backwards, you'd be like, holy shit, this is this is a lot of drugs. But as a as a as a start, it's a totally different starting place. And that's where the supergroup thing comes in again as well, because I think um, Elton John was on that album. Holy fuck! Have you seen the Elton John, the new Elton John? Not Elton John. Did you say Elton John? Elton John. Yeah. Say Elton John I'm one not more time. Elton John. Elton John. <laughs> fuck. Piano. I don't know why like that me. triggered me, but it made me think of Paul McCartney. <laughs> <laughs> Completely yeah, different artist, completely different musician in person. But have you seen his, 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 his? He's got a new album coming out with Moby. Really? No. Paul McCartney. I know he did. A, he did an album. He did a new album last year, and then they brought out a sort of sequel to it this year, which is loads of people covering his songs or like remixing the songs. You know what though? Some artists just need to stop and call it a day. Yeah. There was. I'm just having to YouTube it. So uh, the video came out a month ago, but it's Paul McCartney and Beck. Fuck, it's not Moby at all. It's <laughs> Paul McCartney and Beck, find my way. But I've seen it advertised. I fuck knows what I was watching because I barely watch television these days. But it was on. Couldn't help but look at this thing and I was so freaked out by it. They've de-aged Paul McCartney in the music video. Oh, oh. why would you do these oh, things? Oh, that's brutal. Paul McCartney and Beck and they've de-aged them in the music video and I'm just like this is it this this is now the infinite loop we're stuck in you're talking about David Bowie we're going to get Ziggy Stardust part 2 next year and it's going to be like a you know a de-aged Bowie it's going to be fucking Freddie Mercury's coming back in a couple of years de-aged you know it's like when they put Tupac as a hologram on on Coachella yeah, they started like doing they started doing the AI vocals as well it's the end there or no the beginning of the vocals, end for AI voices AI voices for computer games. So it's, that's only a stretch, you know, it's not a far stretch from, you know, AI voices in computer games to like AI voices singing. Well, they use AI for pitch correction. I watched a really interesting video of, of Adam Neely, the, the sort of YouTube jazz musician doing pitch correction on some really old rock songs just to see what would happen. So you take the beginning of Whole Lot of Love by Led Zeppelin. You listen to his name escapes me, his vocals and the pitch. Robert, Robert, Plant. Robert Plant's pitch does not, he's pretty good, but it, because it's a bluesy song, he's sort of hitting a few mid-tones in there just to sort of give it a bit of edge. 
And when you take away all the, the nuances of a real recorded vocal line and pitch correct it, it just sounds a bit flat. It, it sounds it yeah. it sounds right. Don't get me wrong. It doesn't it doesn't sound incorrect because it is it is more right than it was, but it doesn't sound like the real thing anymore. It sounds really sterile and 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 yeah, that's rock and roll. That is rock and roll. It because they now this pitch correction. I mean, people talk about like auto tune. You know, you've got two different types of auto tune. Really, you've got the 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 effect of auto-tune, the, the sound that the one that Cher and T-Pain have probably popularised the most. Yeah. <laughs> but then you've just got just general pitch correction, which, yeah, you can, depending on how much you use it, is is really important. But because people, young, young kids today, are hearing pitch-corrected music, they behave, they sing like pitch-corrected music. Yeah. So they they it's every every Super Bowl and every like big American sports event or someone singing the national anthem or whatever it's always like da 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 like totally correct. There's no soul to it. There's no there's no Whitney. No, it's I not Whitney anymore. We're missing Whitney no, doing it at the baseball that, games. And that's that's one of the things that you get with um with you know with rock and roll bands is it's not correct. It's not right. It's not going to be right every time. And I do not want to see. And that maybe it's just me, but I don't. If I go to see a band live, I don't want to see them doing the album. I, I, it's all right if they're going to play the album songs, that's cool. But if they're going to if they're going to play it note perfect and pitch perfect, then what's the fucking point of me leaving the house? Yeah, you may as well just put the CD on. There, there has to be, yeah, there has to be. I'm not talking about you know mad improvisations and you know going mental and like you know random solos all over the place and doing like a Led Zeppelin twenty minute fucking solo. But having some sort of soul to it rather than just a performance. There's a balance. There's a balance because I've I've seen uh, I remember seeing Deep Purple live, and uh, Steve Morse was the guitar player, and he's he's an absolute virtuoso. Oh, we've we've lost Keith. Oh, and he's coming back. Um, yeah, he's an absolute virtuoso when it comes to to his guitar work. But my God, sometimes it's just like finish the fucking song. Just finish yeah. the fucking song. You're still playing this goddamn solo. Hi, Keith. Uh, so it's, hey, we've it. It was always just one of those gigs that I'll never forget. I was like, oh, oh he's off wanking away again. It. For fuck's sake, fuck off, Steve. Play the song. Um, but then again, there is that times when you go to see a band and they just put their heads down and play note perfect. And while you can admire their ability on stage to reproduce that i think sometimes you're like well well that, that that's great i've now i can say i've seen it live but there was nothing remarkable about it other than it being correct i want to see some i want to see some passion and that sounds a bit a bit much but i want to see the whatever feeling it was when they wrote the song i want to see that coming back when they play it yeah I want to see that. I want to see that sweat. I want to see that sort of like that strain of someone trying to recreate what they've done in the studio. I don't want to see it. Everyone standing there playing note perfect and you know dancing about. I'll listen to the record. I'll, I'll listen to the record in the house. That's fine. I'll, if I go to see a band, it's a fine line. I think the only band that actually comes to memory about like you know being a bit rough but like getting through this the, the set and stuff 
that I enjoyed was Mastodon. I've seen them a bunch of times at sort of different venues across Glasgow and that. And I, I do remember sort of one time sort of being like, ooh. You know, you know how like once once you've sort of been in bands for a while or, or, or you've you've played a few gigs and you kinda get a feel for what's going on and you kinda get a feel for like the live surroundings and you know what's involved in getting getting that live sound out there and stuff like that, you can kinda be like, Oh, that was that was a wrong note or something like that. Whereas the dude next to you who's just there to fucking drink pints and headbang might not give a fuck about that. Like I was just like Oh yeah, that was that wasn't the right note. But it was funny. It was fun because I think they knew themselves. I think I saw them acknowledge it on stage that they were maybe having a bit of a rough one, but they were still fucking pretty awesome to be fair. Yeah. And I think that's that's what gives live music the you know, the edge over Yes, you know, you want to as a band you want to sell records and you want to make it sustainable. I think that's any any musician's dream is to to make their living out of out of music. Mm-hmm. Um and it's a fine line of being faithful to the record, but also giving it a bit of personality, I think sometimes, and that's something that I saw quite a lot with Queens of Stone Age. In fact, when when they were doing the um, Songs to the Deaf tour, I was working in the record shop in Glasgow, and Nick Oliveri came in looking for a, a record player, uh, not a record player, a CD player, and I was like, "No, oh, we don't sell CD players." But are you, uh, are you, I was seventeen, so I didn't know what was Loving going it. on. I said, "Hey, man, are you are you Nicola Berry from Queens of the Stone Age?" He was like, "Yeah, brother, I am." I said, "I'm coming to see you later on." He's like, "Cool, we'll go for a pint afterwards." So I was like, "Aye, all right." So we got the gig at the Barrowlands, and it was great. And it was, you know, it was ropey. It was like there was, it was just all I can remember from it is just smoke machine. It was all smoke machine. But I remember like between songs because I was still young and agile i was down the front and <laughs> between between tunes he sort of looked down he's like hey man yeah come backstage come backstage we'll, we'll do drinks i was like yeah cool no bother and as soon as it left as soon as it ended i left because like, oh, <laughs> 17 i don't know how to do i don't know how to deal with this stuff don't even know what nicotine is <laughs> totally how, how, how at 17 do you drink with a band man man i'd have probably not done no, that I was, I was i've never left a venue fast enough and then it, the way it's funny how life works out because when I told my pal that I was uh, coming on this podcast, he's like, oh, I'll give you Nick's number. Why? <laughs> he's like, oh, you can phone him and he can come on the podcast. I was like, I'm going to phone him. I've met him once, like, what, 20 years ago. Remember that come Remember on, that 17-year-old kid in 2001 yeah. or two when you were, like, you were, you tell him to come and have a beer. He was underage. We're getting you done now. <laughs> <laughs> totally, you can add that to shotgun charges. Fucking done you. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, that's been quite the uh, quite the journey we've been on here with this. Uh, it has with this chat. We've been all around the houses, I think. Yeah, uh, Tony, do you have any releases or anything that you're doing at the moment with uh, Wasted State or anything music related that you want to push to the to our our burgeoning audience? We're where can we find you? Where's your socials? Where 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 can oh, oh socials? Um, wastedstate.com is the the label website, and I think the socials are pretty much just at wasted state on your platform of choice. I think that's apart from TikTok, which I will not touch with a forty foot barge pole. Yeah, uh, Release wise, we're too old. Yeah, we're too old for sounds, TikTok. Yeah, it sounds horrible, and I'm I'm not a fan. Uh, release wise, um, I've got a few things coming up, but nothing's been announced yet, and I'm gonna lead by example and not announce anything that's not already been announced. So there's nothing going on because no one's touring yet. So as soon as people get touring, 
hopefully hopefully there's a, there's a few a few things in the works i think be- between covid and, and all the rest of the stuff there's a lot of um there's a lot of delays getting vinyl pressed and getting cds done and everything like that so just kind of trying to work around that but um yeah i'm i'm going to play a gig in a couple of weeks which will be very strange in uh, in opium so that'll be that'll be interesting how are you feeling about it um i kind of remember all the lyrics which is quite good because i wrote them it's important bonus. so that's 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 good um it's going to be weird it's going to be weird being in a room of people that of that you know that many people that i don't know and trying not to catch the the big the big rona so it'll be interesting <laughs> are you are you double jabbed I am double jabbed, um, but I've, I've heard of people getting with double jabs and getting the getting the nonsense. So we'll see see what happens. I won't be licking anybody. So you say that now. Once you get into the zone, well, I might I might I might have a couple of pints and lick 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 a few people. Maybe maybe five people will get licked. Right, Lav. I know we're just uh, I know we're this is our first episode back, so I'm a little out of practice. But why don't you take us home and I'll jump out for a piss? So <laughs> thanks very much. <laughs> Good night. Thanks, Tony. Bye, everyone. Bye. Uh, thank you very much for listening. This has been Alive or Just Blethering. Next week on Alive or Just Blethering, I believe Keith is going to be taking us through. Um, fuck. Was it DJ Lethal? Did it, was it DJ? Oh my god. DJ format. DJ DJ format. Oh man. We discussed this. I'm gonna to have to look it up very quickly. Yeah, we're gonna be just, doing. Just give him. Yes, just give him a random, random subject. It is. It's DJ format. So next week on Alive Just Blathering, Keith is going to be taking us through uh, music for the mature b boy by DJ Format. Uh, thanks very much for listening. Thank you, Tony, for joining us uh, this evening. Uh, this has been Alive Just Blathering. Uh, please check out wastedstate.com. See what uh, Tony's label is going to be releasing. You can head on over to our Instagram and Twitter feeds at AOGB Podcast for all our latest updates. And thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.